On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Ray Rhodes about Susie Spurgeon. So it covers topics like, who is Susie Spurgeon? How influential was she really upon her husband and her son? How did she see the role of the pastor's wife and how did she ultimately serve the church? What was her role with the book fund and poor ministries and all sorts of things like that? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, and we want to think with particular intellectual virtues, and those are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We hope all of our episodes really embody these types of characteristics, and that we can encourage thoughtful dialogue, particularly among Baptists, because, well, me and Brandon are Baptists, and we found that a lot of Baptists have had a lack in serious engagement critically. So we hope to have conversations that can move that forward. And today I'm really looking forward to talking to Dr. Ray Rhodes about Susanna Spurgeon. So Spurgeon, I think, gets a lot of publicity, particularly among Baptists, but not so much his wife. So we've got here Dr. Rhodes, who's written a biography of her. And I mean, as far as I know, you're the expert on this. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about her, learning more about Spurgeon and just all the dynamics that go into that. I think that's fascinating to have a glimpse into just the personal family life of someone who is so, uh, I guess, really, I mean, he, he did just, he worked all the time. He produced a lot of content to, to understand what that looked like, I think is really helpful and interesting, particularly for pastors. So before we get started into all of that, Dr. Rhodes, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners, just give us a little bit of a bio, and then maybe what got you interested in researching this particular area? Well, thank you, Jordan and Brandon, for having me on your show. I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, I've been a pastor for about 33 years. I graduated from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary most recently with my D-men. We have uh, married to Lori. We have six daughters, uh, five grandchildren. Yeah, house full uh, <laughs> around here. And uh, been interested in Spurgeon for quite a long time, but uh, more interest developed in 2014, I would say, when I was working on my doctoral, doing my doctoral work at Southern and uh, was writing on the spirituality of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. And it was really during that time I discovered Susanna. Uh, I'd known about her, like many people who love Spurgeon. I'd known that uh, he was married to her. I, I knew that she was sickly. And I knew that she gave away books to poor pastors, but uh, that's about it. Uh, and the more I sort of peeled back layers in Spurgeon's life, discovering Susie, the more fascinated I became with Spurgeon's wife and uh, found out really and came to the conclusion that we don't have Spurgeon as we have him if he had not been married to Susie. Uh, mm -hmm. She was fit for him. God put those two together. And uh, that led to the biography Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon. And then that also, uh, that opened the door for the new book that just came out, Yours Till Heaven, The Untold Love Story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Both of those from Moody Publishers. Very thankful to uh, have done those. Yeah. Well, thank you again for uh, giving us some of your time today, Dr. Rhodes. Uh, as Jordan 
uh, talked about earlier. I don't know, maybe we weren't recording yet when he said this, but I have read the book and I just want to recommend it for everyone. I, I really um, did enjoy this book uh, cover to cover. And I have the second book, but I haven't gotten to that one yet. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, maybe just begin, if you don't mind, just by telling us a little bit about the early life of Susie. Um, you know, was she raised in a Christian home? Um, and then maybe up to the point where her and Charles uh, first meet. Yeah, uh, Susie was um, the daughter, the only child, and the, of course the only daughter of Robert and Susanna Thompson. And she was born in London, and she was uh, would have been baptized as a baby in uh, in London as well. Uh, her family was still rather, uh, relatively nonconformist in their views uh, view of things, and later would attend the New Park Street Chapel prior to Spurgeon becoming the pastor there. So uh, London was a, a pretty religious city in that day and a lot of Christian influence. I think Susie would have grown up uh, hearing the Bible read. Family worship would have been a, it's pretty much a staple item, even in nominal Christian homes. And she would have been acquainted with that, probably acquainted with the uh, prayer book and uh, also uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, she later would become very acquainted with that. So uh, we don't know a lot about her background, a lot about her parents. Um, her, uh, uh, they did attend church at least by the 1840s. She was born, by the way, in 1832, and Spurgeon was born in 1834. She's two and a half years older than Spurgeon. And it's sort of interesting to frame her life uh, with Queen Victoria. Victoria came to the throne in 1837. So Susie's born in 1832. Victoria, I think, is 16 or 17 as queen at, uh, 18, at uh, 1837. Susie, uh, Victoria dies in 1901. Susie dies in 1903. And so her whole life is lived really with Victoria as the queen, Victorian uh, sort of sentiment throughout London. So my, my understanding when she first met Spurgeon, this was not a, a story of, of love at first sight. Maybe walk us through um, her first impression of, of Charles and then how that, that romance um, blossomed from there. Yeah, uh, I, you know, it's doubtful we would know anything about Susie had she not married Charles. And as I said earlier, I'm not sure we would know as much or we would have Charles as we have him without her. So, again, God fitted them together. But it didn't start off so well. Uh, Charles is a 17-year-old pastor in Waterbeach, which is north of London. Uh, the church is still there. The second building, uh, the first one burned that Spurgeon was pastoring in. He helped to rebuild this, the one that is there now. It's uh, still a Baptist congregation, Water Beach Baptist Chapel. And he went to be pastor there at age 17, uh, maybe about 30 or 40 people in attendance by the time he left there. In 1854, there was about 400 people in attendance. So this small village church just exploded. And so Spurgeon comes to London to preach as a guest preacher at the, at the New Park Street Chapel at age 19. Uh, 1853, January 18th, um, excuse me, December 18th. Susie doesn't attend the morning service. The church is in decline. She's essentially lost interest, as her parents seem to have as well, and many others. The church uh, had had legendary pastors, people like John Gill and John Rippon and Benjamin Keach, uh, great heroes in the Baptist world. But over the years, other pastors had come in, and the church had declined. And uh, so they were looking for hope. And the first time the church heard Spurgeon that Sunday morning, they're pretty excited. They were able to uh, Friends were able to talk Susie into attending the Sunday evening service. 
And when she first saw Spurgeon, uh, her reaction was pretty negative uh, from everything, from the way he looked, the way his hair was, uh, to his clothing, the way he spoke. Uh, she couldn't really believe that that historic church, and Susie was, was a refined and very cultured city girl, would have someone like Charles Spurgeon fill their pulpit. But the church didn't share her sentiment. They were excited about him and kept, continued to ask him to come back. Susie had only been converted at that time about a year. And uh, she had immediately sort of fallen into what she described as a backslidden uh, situation. She was very cold. And she later reflected on that first time hearing Spurgeon as, as uh, the sentiments of a cold heart, really. And, and uh, so Spurgeon continued to preach. He got word that she was struggling spiritually. And he sent her a copy of the Pilgrim's Progress. And now all of a sudden it became very precious to her. The pastor has sent it uh, to her. And she began opening up with Charles, sharing her spiritual challenges. And he he really led her to a better understanding of the gospel and a deeper walk with Christ and a, a commitment to reading the scripture and prayer. And it's like the uh, you know all those years of Bible reading uh, and under the influence of Spurgeon, it's like the Holy Spirit sort of lit the fire on her heart. And she began to grow and she grew rapidly. It was just a short time after that that Spurgeon could was just astounded at the depth of her spirituality. Uh, so that that's in uh, April of 1854. Uh, the, right now we're celebrating the month that Spurgeon formally became the pastor of the New Park Street Chapel. And by June, uh, Spurgeon's got feelings for her. She doesn't know that. Uh, there's a group from the church that attends the grand reopening of the uh, Crystal Palace which uh, was originally at Hyde's Park in 1851, but moves to south of London. And the ruins of that is still there today. And I encourage anybody that goes to London to, that's one of the, to me, one of the highlights of my trips to London was seeing the ruins of the Crystal Palace. But while there, this grand opening, Queen Victoria is there as well. Spurgeon opens a book by Martin Tupper on, called Proverbial Philosophy. He points out a section on marriage. And Susie is seated beside him, and he asks her if she prays for the one who's to be her husband. And, uh, you know, Susie understood that. Uh, she And later he would say, would you take a walk with me? And so they got up, and they walked out of the building, unchaperoned. Uh, they walked probably, a, I'm thinking it's about 200 yards from this, uh, the palace to the lake below, where these dinosaur models, the first ever dinosaur models, I think, were placed there beside that lake. They're still there. Uh, you can see the very place where Susie fell in love with Charles. It's a very moving experience. I was there with my wife and we were reliving this story. And she talks about her heart uh, rapidly beating and uh, the excitement that she felt. And so two months after that, he asked her to marry him and she accepts that. So if you just kind of put it uh, in the context, Jan December of 1853, totally unimpressed. August of 1854, less than a year, she's excited about saying yes to Spurgeon's marriage proposal. So it's a great providence of God and all of that. Hmm. That's interesting. So you, you mentioned something about how we probably wouldn't have uh, Charles Spurgeon without her and vice versa. So just how influential was she and in what ways did she ultimately influence him uh, as the years went by? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh you know, Charles, the, to be married to Charles Spurgeon required a very unique wife. Uh, early in his ministry, he's, he's 12 times a week preaching somewhere. 
so he's on the road a lot. He's often back at home, but uh, he's also traveling a lot. So he's away from home a lot. And and his time away from home would actually increase as he got older. By the 1870s, he's, uh, his health is so poor that his doctor is sending him to the French Riviera, Montan, there on southern France to recuperate. Susie's health is so poor, she can't go with him. So all that to say, they're separated a lot. He, his fame is unbelievable. Spurgeon was not only one of the most famous preachers in the Victorian era, he was one of the most famous people in the world. That's that's staggering. Uh, I would say Charles Dickens and Charles Spurgeon were two of the most famous, quote, celebrities, if you will, in, in all the world. So Spurgeon had to be married to a very unique person. Susie made a commitment early on in their engagement that she would never hinder him in his work. It was her heart's desire to support him. And Spurgeon never left home imagining that she was bitter or she was angry she was frustrated that he was leaving. Now she was sad. She missed him. She was lonely. I mean, she was a, she was she was human after all. She was not a robot. Uh, so she did weep and she did miss him, but she supported him. And there were times when he felt he needed to come back home. When Spurgeon would say, when she would write to him and telegram him and say, "No, stay." Uh, one time, particularly, she she's some the doctors think she's about to die. She's taken ill. And Spurgeon's conflicted, and she says, do not come home. And such was her confidence in Christ that she knew she was in God's hands, regardless of whether Charles was there or not. And she was always attended. He didn't leave her alone. She was always attended by uh, employees that worked at their home. So she was, she was never alone when she was sick. So she was uniquely gifted in the fact that she was totally supportive and also uh, she was intellectually strong and a great match for Spurgeon. In fact, if you read it, Susie wrote five standalone books, as well as being a significant contributor uh, to the four-volume autobiography of Charles Spurgeon. So she's an editor and a contributor. This happens after he dies in late 1890s and early 1900s. This is being produced. Uh, as well as she was for a time the editor of the Sordid Trial after he died. So she is intellectually robust. Uh, she's a reader. She's a thinker. And she's a writer. In fact, when you read her writing, uh, you you see Charles, uh, the same sort of uh, writing style that he had in many ways. And she was very accomplished as a writer. So intellectually, she had the heart support for him. Uh, spiritually, uh, she was she her growth in Christ. She was reading God's word through every year, and faithful to pray for him. And she was sympathetic towards him when he would weep. She would weep with him. Uh, Spurgeon suffered with depression, mm-hmm. and she would read the poetry of George Herbert to him. Sometimes he'd come home on a Sunday night convicted that his heart had been too cold while preaching, and he would say, "Susie, read Richard Baxter to me." Uh, so uh, he wanted the urging. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I have trouble reading the, the preface in the Banner of Truth edition that J.I. Packer wrote. I get so convicted over that. But, uh, so in every yeah. way, she was a support to, to Charles. Yeah. Well, maybe if you can take us, and you, you, we started to go there just a little bit um, a minute ago, maybe take us inside of their home. Um, how... Not not just between Charles and Susie, but how did she see her role as a, a Christian mother? They had twin boys. Um, 
how did she disciple their children? What were some of the things that she did um, to, to, to form them spiritually? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, because, uh, because Spurgeon was gone a lot uh, and he believed in family worship. So the commitment of that household was family worship every day and likely would have been twice a day. Uh, Spurgeon wrote a book called The Interpreter. And it's really designed for family worship, and it's designed for twice-a-day family worship. But he he has a caveat in the book, understanding some people will not be able to pull off twice a day. And so we have once a day for those folks. But he, he had no category in his thinking for no family worship or irregular family worship. Family worship is just what Christian families did. That was Spurgeon's commitment. So when he's gone, Susie is leading that. Uh, and she... She would read with the, the boys. They had twin boys the first year of their marriage. And uh, she would sing with them. She played the piano. But she was very careful when she was singing. For example, they, they might have a hymn that talked about one's personal uh, true experience of faith in Jesus Christ. And she would have them leave out that section because they had, before they had personally come to faith in Christ themselves. So that was interesting. Uh, that's an interesting side mm-hmm. note there. Uh, but but neither Charles nor Susie led the boys at the moment of conversion to Christ. But both of them point to their mother as the singular most important influence in their conversion and in their spiritual development. Now, they both revered Charles, uh, but he's you know honestly he he's not there as much. And when he is is there, his time is so. Uh, so committed. Uh, he, they love him and he loves them dearly. And he writes some wonderful letters to them, but she actually bore the responsibility more than he did of training them up in, in every way. You know? Was there ever any tension in that separation of duties to some degree where he's gone a lot and she's bearing the responsibility on that front? Um, or was that something that they both just agreed upon and thought was the best path to take given the ministry opportunities that he had. Yeah, it was agreed upon. And again, she wholeheartedly, it wasn't, she didn't do that through sort of gritted teeth and uh, dogged determination. It was just her joy to do that. Now, again, remember that the Spurgeon home had many assistants. Uh, And it was common in Victoria's Victorian era even you guys, you know, me, for example, if we had lived in that era, if we're relatively middle class families, I'm just assuming you guys may be, you know, very wealthy families. I don't know. but if no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not either. So a middle class family would typically have one servant that uh, and that not a slave, but they called them household servants and they were paid employees. By the time Spurgeon died, he had probably nine, nine or ten of those. There were dressmakers and cooks and yards, you know, groundskeepers and the whole nine yards. So, so Spurgeon's life was so unique that his home was this massive enterprise. So much ministry happened at his house. Uh, that was the uh, that was the Grand Central Station for the book ministry that Susie led. That's where Spurgeon did most of his study and most of his writing. And most of his work, uh, that's where they entertained visitors from around the world. Uh, they were very hospitable, as well as the students in their college. Um, it was it required a lot for Spurgeon to be Spurgeon. Uh, mm-hmm. And so 
they had assistance with the, the boys. And also at a certain age, the boys went off to, to school, to various schools as well. Some, some close to home and later they would be further uh, from home. It, we think of Spurgeon, you know, we think of this huge figure, you know, a great preacher, pr- prolific author. And, and, and we've already, you, you hinted at his um, depression that he struggled with. So um, maybe talk to us about, um, how Susie not only helped him in his suffering, but also the suffering um, that she faced herself. Um, I know that she had a lot of health problems, especially um, later in her life where she was basically, um, she had to stay at home. She couldn't even travel at all. Um, talk to us about what, what, where that physical suffering originated and then um, how they ministered to one another as a couple as they faced these, these trials throughout their lives. Yeah. Uh, and to kind of put it in context, think of, you know, they're married in 1856. Uh, she's baptized in 1855. They're married in 1856. Uh, and the first years of their marriage, she's able to travel some with him. In fact, uh, she travels across the Alps with him. She's very active uh, physically. She's able to, to walk long distance. Spurgeon would be in the carriage with his publisher or someone talking books Susie's way out front looking over the mountain passes and and various things. So they they travel, which in some ways made the later years more difficult for her because she had memories of them being together. Uh, She was with Spurgeon when he preached in in Geneva at Calvin's church. The only time I believe that Spurgeon ever wore a clerical robe was at Calvin's church. That's not something he favored, but he was willing to wear anything. He said something to that effect. <laughs> to preach in Calvin's pulpit, I, I would too. I'd probably stand on my stand on my head, maybe. <laughs> uh, if necessary. So Spurgeon was like us. I mean, he he had heroes in history, and uh, he was so thankful for that. So they they did spend a lot of time together. Uh, they loved being together. Uh, Spurgeon had uh, some gout issues early on. Uh, but not paralyzing typically. But in 1868, 1869, uh, Susie had surgery by a famed gynecologist, which gives us some indicator of the sort of uh, problem that she had. They never had any more children. They had the twin boys the first year of their marriage. And every indicator is they would have been, they would have had more children if they could have had more children. They love, they love children. Spurgeon's orphanages are an example of how much he, he loved children, so they couldn't have children. And after the surgery, uh, and if you can look at, the, you can look. I've been to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. I've looked through the church records. You can see in 1868 where Susie's attendance starts falling off, and by 1869, essentially she's never able to attend again. I mean, she makes an appearance occasionally, but she she doesn't go back much. Uh, she can't. She's at home. And so that cast her really into a greater sense of dependency on being with Charles and being in a study and learning from him and being shepherded at home. Uh, so her pain was so significant that she said sometimes she had a difficult time raising her head or her hand. My theory is it was something like endometriosis, uh, that she probably had a hysterectomy or something. And thinking of the medicine and surgery, surgery being much more primitive than it it just didn't have a great effect. It probably helped her some, but that's the sort of way I, as I've talked to ladies about that, that endometriosis can be very, very painful and it can really put them on their back. And, and so I think it was something like that that she experienced, 
but when she was up and about, she was she was active uh, and serving in the home. Again, travel was very painful for her. Uh, Charles's own health gets worse and worse. He uh, he has kidney disease. His gout is paralyzing at times. He has to go to bed as well. Uh, his depression, uh, some of it had to be physiologically in, induced. He didn't know why he was depressed as well uh, most of the time. Uh, and that resulted in weight, weight gain. I mean, Spurgeon became heavier and heavier and heavier over the course of his life. And so by 1870, 1871, 72, 73, uh, his health is so poor. That's when the doctors start sending him down to the Southern France. And he would go sometimes for three months. He would go during the winter months. And because uh, the London winters were just brutal on Charles, that that and the, the dampness connected to the cold temperatures and London was a foggy, smoggy, dirty place anyway. And uh, so he would go, he'd get better and he'd come back and preach again. And so from 1870s till his death, he was gone a lot just for that purpose. Now, while he's there, he's writing. He'd be sometimes preaching there, leading Bible studies in his hotel. He's ministering nevertheless, but it's very painful. And he talks about that uh, after the downgrade controversy. He, uh, or during that time, he, he writes his book, Checkbook of Faith, which is a wonderful book on God's pro- of God's promises. And he, he talks about the, his own suffering the controversy that he's involved in. But he also says, and besides all that, one is dear as life to me back at home suffering. It's a very moving uh, passage in the introduction to that book that really opens up uh, Spurgeon's heart. So they both felt the loneliness of separation. His letters would say, oh, that you could be with me. Oh, that you could be with me. Oh, that you could be with me. She's suffering. He's suffering. And, uh, it's, it is a, you know, just like anyone that experiences that, they felt that and, and they suffered as a result of that. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things I enjoyed the most about the book, and, and probably there's more in, in the second book that I haven't gotten to yet, is the excerpts um, of from their letters to one another. I mean, they're just so sweet um, how they um, talk to one another when they're separated. I mean, it's just, I thought it was very beautiful. But Jordan, were you about to say something? So... When I think about the relationship, I think one question that at least I find interesting is understanding her role as the pastor's wife and how she's serving the church. I know a lot of churches, at least in America, it almost seems like there's an informal position that she, that uh, the pastor's wife occupies, even if, you know, obviously, I, at least for me, I don't see any office in scripture of pastor's wife where they have to, to be doing particular things. But I think there is some sort of expectation, uh, un, unwritten expectation placed upon uh, pastor's wives. So I'm just curious, what did it look like for her, especially given later in life where you're talking about how she can't really travel, it's very painful. I mean, do people at the church get frustrated at that? What, what does all that look like? Yeah, there, there's no indication of any frustration uh, like that. Um, it doesn't mean it, doesn't, it didn't exist, but it, there's no indication. Now, the first years of their marriage, when she is attending church, uh, her, she takes on the responsibility, joyfully, of counseling the uh, ladies that are being baptized. And that's an interesting story, because after she dies, some of those ladies are still alive, and they're giving testimony of how much that meant to them. 
how how wise her counsel was. So that seems to be uh, what she one of her primary responsibilities was counsel. And there was a lot of baptisms. Uh, don't ask me the numbers. I don't have those in front of me. But there's a lot of baptisms throughout Spurgeon's ministry. There uh, it seems like maybe six thousand people added to the church during the course of his ministry about baptism. Spurgeon couldn't really remember a time preaching that someone was not converted. I mean, it was a unique time in his life. Now, and beyond that, she saw her primary role as supporting him. And open, and in, in doing that, she supported the church and its ministries by, uh, in, in the early, the very early period of their marriage, they had to sacrifice financially because they supported the college. Spurgeon's heart was the pastor's college. They started from the very beginning of their marriage. And she opened her home. Uh, they, they, had, they had guests often. Saturday was a day of guests. And they would have the students over. They have uh, travelers that came to see Spurgeon over um, and others. And so the home was open as a center of hospitality. And, for example, on some of those Saturdays, Spurgeon would have his students come over They'd go when a nice day, they would sit outside and she would join them. And sometimes they would ask him questions. So if you can imagine, you know, your favorite pastor uh, having an opportunity on a a day of the week to go and ask him anything. That's the way the students looked up to Spurgeon like that. But he would turn it up to her and he would say, Susie, you can answer that question better than I can. (laughs) And on one particular occasion, and I think it's in the, the, the new book. Uh, instead of the first book, but he, he asked, uh, they're asking about Bible reading. And he says, well, Susie's read the, the Bible more than essentially more than I have <laughs> all the way through. She read it through every year. And uh, they both of them really liked meditating on small portions of scripture as well. But uh, yeah, that's so she supported him through prayer. She supported him uh, by setting him free to go. She counseled lady baptismal candidates. She opened their home as a center of hospitality and she led the book fund that started in 1875. <clears throat> Let's spend some time talking about um, her later life. I'm particularly interested in in two things. One, the, the church plant that she was involved in. And then the other, um, the book fund, you mentioned Spurgeon had a, a heart for pastors and Susie did as well. Um, and that that's shown in, in this book fund that she was, and I was just stunned when I, I, I saw the sheer amount of books that, <laughs> that she gave away through this book fund. So talk to us about both of those things, the book fund and then her involvement in the church plant. Yeah. Uh, the book fund started in 1875 with the release of Spurgeon's first volume of lectures to my students. So he gave her a proof copy to read and he said, uh, Susie, what do you think about that? And she said, I love it. And she said, I wish I could give every, I wish we could give a copy to every pastor in, in England. And he said, well, why don't you do that? And again, she, she's an invalid. And uh, she, you know, sort of like a, a lot of us, maybe I wish someone would do something about that. And we don't expect it to be us, of course, but uh, Susie <laughs> was surprised. But she went upstairs and had some money put aside and she invested uh, and through the publisher's help, she bought, a, I think, 100 copies the first time. And she sent those out and, you know, like pastors in those days, like in our day, word gets out, there's free books and uh, uh, requests start pouring in. Right. Uh, You guys have never done that. but uh, (laughs) uh, So the request poured in and and really she discovered through that how many really poor, poor pastors there were. There were pastors who who almost never had a new book uh, or had not had a new book in years. Their total library was maybe three, four, five books. (laughs) 
they they would not buy books because they they barely made enough money to feed their family, and they had often large families, a lot of children, uh, medical care, s- struggling to put clothing on their family. So they wouldn't buy books if their children needed uh, a dress. You know, the daughter needed a dress, or or they needed bread for the table. So they they struggled. And Susie was convinced that the churches would be stronger, the pastors would be encouraged, and the gospel would spread further if these pastors could have tools to help them in their studies, to help them in their sermon prep. And so that's what happened. Uh, And there's stories that will really make you weep. Pastors would get a box of books, and it it was like gold to them. She was very generous. I mean, she had qualifications. She had to qualify to get the books and whatnot. They were really for poor pastors. And they would weep, and the whole family would gather around. It was like Christmas time. They'd open these books. They would handle them. They would look at them. Immediately, they would be put to use for the Sunday sermon to help them in their preaching. Uh, she gave away 200,000 books over the course of 1875 to 1903. And she handled every aspect of that ministry. She chose the books. She chose the people who would get the books. She corresponded with the pastors herself. The books were kept in their home. She she didn't necessarily box them up and ship them, but she oversaw the entire price. She kept all of the records of that. And so two books that she wrote were on the book fund. Uh, the first one uh, came out in 1886. Uh, after It's called 10 Years of My Life in the Service of the Book Fund. It's really the closest thing to an autobiography of Susie that we have. And the second one, uh, which it takes over from 1886 to 1896, uh, is 10 more years of her life in the book fund. And what's wonderful about that book is it's, it walks us through the very period in which Spurgeon dies and all of her experiences with that. And so when he dies in 19, 18, keep saying 19, 1892, uh, she's wondering what God would have her to do. And she becomes convinced that he would have her to continue the book fund. And the books most treasured by pastors were those written by Spurgeon, his sermons, the sword and trial, other things, the uh, saint and the savior. But she also used sent other good books by the Puritans and other authors that she trusted to pastors. Uh, so that legacy lives on. There's a there's a ministry still today called the Susanna Project. It's uh, a, a family up in Virginia does that. Mm. Um, Michael and Aaron Miller. And so they they give uh, digital books to pastors to pastors and missionaries, but it's inspired by Susanna Spurgeon's. And th- so there's been others throughout history that have had similar ministries. Uh, that's one way she also kept his legacy going. Kept you know, she was involved in the his sermons going around the world and the whole thing. The other question I think it was about her church plant, right? So, yes, so, uh, so Spurgeon dies in 1892. She's an invalid. She's older herself. Uh, and yet she, she doesn't sort of, uh, sort of twiddle her thumbs and bemoan her situation. She does everything that she can do as long as she can do it. So she wanted to serve Christ. So the book fund, she could continue as managed through her home primarily. And, uh, I think it was 1895. She was, uh, the home was being worked on. And, uh, so she's able to make a trip. By the way, She's able to, her health improves around the time of Spurgeon, just a few months before Spurgeon died. Spurgeon had been making this trip to Montan since the 1870s. She had never been able to go with him 
he his greatest longing was to have her there. October of uh, 1891, when he's going to go back there again, thinking he'll go recover, come back, minister some more. Uh, miraculously, she's given strength. It's a it's an amazing story of God's providence, and and she's able to go with him, and it's like the the most thrilling experience of his life. He gets her there, and he says, "Susie, wasn't it wonderful to come?" Uh, all this distance to see this. He's pointing out all of his favorite sites uh, at Montan. So it's so sweet. And she describes it as three months of perfect happiness. Uh, it's like their honeymoon all over again. And they're like, I mean, they're holding hands and, you know, all these love letters they've exchanged over the years. He's hiding, he'll hide behind a wall and she'll come around. He'll jump out and, you know, uh, they're just, he's playful like that. Uh, it's just the sweetest story. And so she's there when he dies. She's at his bedside in uh, January of 1892. He says he becomes uh, his sickness deepens and he goes to bed mid January and dies 1892. And she stays behind. She stays there in Montan for an extra month while the body is shipped back to London. And there's a week of services in London for Spurgeon. Uh, and so that's where she determines during that month that she's in the south of France after his death that she's going to continue the book fund. And then, so she goes back to London then we move ahead to 1895. Again, uh, the house is being worked on. She travels to a place called Bexhill on sea, which I think is about an hour South of London. I've been there. I don't know my uh, way around too much, but uh, I think it's about an hour South of London on the sea there. And uh, while she's there, uh, she's staying in a nice place. Uh, house is being worked on. She's there with a team of people. And she asked a local resident, where's the local Baptist church? And they said, ma'am, there's no Baptist church here. And she couldn't accept that. <laughs> that that weighed heavily on her. She attended a conservative Methodist chapel that morning. Uh, she was able to go to church. And then she went home and it just she prayed and she prayed and she prayed and she prayed. Well, there's a pastor that had been trained by Spurgeon. He and his wife had been at a church. Something had happened and they left that ministry. They came and stayed with her for a while. She didn't reveal this for some time, but on her mind was this man should be the pastor of a church that doesn't exist yet, but will exist. I mean, she she was a visionary like that. And so she had, finally, she approaches him and says, would you go to this place where there is no church and be the pastor of this church that don't exist? <laughs> and uh, And he goes and she supports that financially and in every sort of way. And uh, the church is established. It's called Beulah Baptist Church, and it still exists today. And I was able to attend there. And the building, now they were getting ready to do some changes to the building when I was there. But when I saw it, it was very much like it would have been uh, when she was there for the dedication of the building. Hmm. And there's plaques on the wall to Susanna Spurgeon. It was they, largely the, the, the main little plaque says it was due to her enterprising commitment that that church exists. And so uh, she didn't really, she doesn't really fit the profile of a church planner. She's older. She's a widow. She's sickly. And yet she's going to serve Christ until she can't serve him anymore. Mm. Amen. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm curious. Um, you, know, you spent years studying the lives of, of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. So you, you've gone through details of their lives that most of us have just never encountered do you have a favorite story or a favorite moment 
from either one or, or both of their lives that that you just um, maybe you hold dear, something that you thought was a really touching moment or maybe a funny moment or something that you just is one of your favorite stories? Yeah, I think it's the one we just spoke of, the last one, uh, when she's able to go to yeah. be with to be with him. You know, Spurgeon, I don't know, you guys probably have some place that you really like to go that brings uh, you know comfort to you or it's refreshing to you. And there's sites that you see there. I mean, I've got a few places where I go and write. Uh, and, uh, you know, my time in London uh, and Paris, I, I, we, we travel to all the main Spurgeon spots uh, trying to re- to get a sense of his place. Uh, Spurgeon, Montan was his second home. Uh, he loved London. He loved ministering there. It had his problems. But uh, Montan was where he was renewed, where he was restored. And he, he would always talk in these sort of terms, these sorts of terms that there's, is, and if you've ever, if you guys ever, I don't know if you've been there or not, if you've never been, try to get down there. It's the most stunningly beautiful place I've ever seen. And you, you step off the, the bus or the train and you can smell the fruit. You can smell the flowers. And there you are on the, the sea and the Maritime Alps are at your back. I mean, they're, they all meets together. And then you read the writings of Spurgeon about this place. And you say, yes, I, I get it. <laughs> I know what he's talking about now. Uh, so he loved this place. But he said, except there's one thing missing. And the one thing missing was Susie. And, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten some questions about both books. And I say, you, you, you make Spurgeon out to be this wonderful husband. But how could he be a wonderful husband when he leaves his wife uh, so often? And, uh, you know, Spurgeon was no perfect man, but he loved his wife. And she had no complaints about him. She missed him. She was lonely for him. But we, we tend to, don't we, uh, I mean, in our present day, we tend to sort of take our present context and transport it back in time and imagine that everyone is thinking exactly as they thought at that time. And pastors tended to think a bit differently, even about the ministry and family then, and their, their wives as well. But uh, it, was a, it was a sweet time. He loved his wife. You can't miss that when you read the letters to her. And his son, their son, Thomas, after she died, he he said that, that my dad, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, my father, he would, he would have said dad, it was that my father was was very public in his affection for her mother. And he said he spoke of her often and he put it down in black and white. There's And in the new book, I have a, 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 a postcard. The When postcards first came out, he wrote her. And he wrote her like this, you know, like down and up, down and up, just being creative. And he said, I, I love writing on this postcard because anyone that wants to read it can. And I want everyone to know uh, essentially how much I, I love my wife. Uh, so there was no question in anybody's mind that you Spurgeon. So and there's a, uh, you know, there's a there's a lady who wrote a biography of uh, of Charles Spurgeon, uh, an academic work, and it's it's got some faults. Uh, Patricia Kruppa is the was the author of that quite a, I think in the 80s, but she describes them late in life uh, as two old lovers still holding hands, still writing love letters, 
uh, in the shadow of the Crystal Palace, just as if they were teens and 20s all over. Yeah, that's good. I, I feel like w- when I hear stories about this, it's almost fun just to sit back and listen. <laughs> uh, like, uh, I'm just like, tell me another story. Um, There's so many. <laughs> One thing I am curious, you know, I think a lot of people they've read obviously stuff from Charles Spurgeon and they can see the the I guess advice he would give to pastors. Do you think there's any advice that she might give to pastors and say I think this is something that they should, you know, be caring for with their flock or just caring for as far as their family goes to be um doing a good job at that? Yeah, I think that I think she would urge on pastors and their churches to be outward minded. I mean, the the heart that she had towards poor pastors is is very moving to read her letters. And you can read those in those two volumes. They're very difficult to get those books. You can get those. I think there's these facsimile companies that you can actually I've got a one facsimile. I've got one. Uh, well, I had one of the older uh, books. Uh, you can read these letters back and forth, and so I think she would she would tell pastors and churches to to be others other centered. She was she would be upset with a church that didn't pay its pastor all that they could pay him. You know, so if a pastor was poor because the church was stingy, her she would you know her, I could see Susie rebuking them for that. Uh, she also felt that you know many of those churches they couldn't they were doing all that they could do, but she also felt that other churches could could work together to help support pastors that there's others who could be doing the sort of work that she was doing as well. Uh, I think she would say to pastors and their wives, uh, don't neglect family worship. Uh, don't neglect family worship. Uh, that was such an important ingredient to both of their, uh, their lives. And I think that she would also say persevere, uh, persevere through hardship. Uh, that's, you know, the, the things they went through, you know, the tragedy early in their ministry, uh, physical suffering, theological controversy, both of them suffering physically as well at the same time, separation. Somehow they were able to keep uh, hearts that were warm towards Christ and towards one another. And I think it was their, their spirituality and their communication. Uh, they... Spurgeon wrote her every day when he was gone. Now think about that. Not an email, not a text, not an Instagram message. Every day he took a dip pen and he wrote her a letter. And when he couldn't physically write the letter, because of his the gout would paralyze him, he would dictate the letter to his secretary, which was a man that traveled with him. Uh, I think I may have gotten off topic a little bit there, but uh, it was just their their communication and they were open yeah. and they were creative in their communication. You read, you see Spurgeon's letters and sometimes he'd have drawings on those letters where he'd, he'd be drawing something he'd seen or something funny and making funny statements. Uh, a lot of people in history have, you know, we know we learn a lot about people from their letters. And this is what I wanted to do in both books. And especially in the, the book that just came out is we tend to view the spurts, Charles Spurgeon, especially is this, preacher and this writer and this thinker and this leader and this superman kind of guy but who was he at home uh who was his wife what role did she have in him being the man the questions you guys have asked today 
What role does she have in him being the man that he, he is? I mean, we can learn from guys who didn't have great home lives. I mean, Spurgeon loved Wesley in many ways, lots of disagreements. And Wesley's home life was a disaster, His wife, him and his wife. So it's not that we can't learn from people who have less than stellar home lives, but it's much richer and sweeter and the credibility is much stronger when the man is practicing at home what he's preaching in the pulpit. And Spurgeon, if anything, was a man of integrity. He said, "You can." I have. He said, "I have nothing to hide. You can write my story in the sky." Mm. Uh, he was not. He didn't have a secret life. And see, today we're learning more and more of how many Christian leaders have a secret life. Spurgeon had no secret life, uh, and even his depression. He would stand before his church and he would talk about how sad he had been and how deep he had been in the dungeon of despair. He was open. He was honest about his love for Susie and about his and which was would have been rather, rather unusual, I think, in Victorian times. I just got one one final question. Maybe it's, it's, I guess it's a two parter. Um, yeah. Do you have any any plans to to write further about the Spurgeons or, or maybe any other um, writing projects that you might have planned down the road and then part two um outside of your two books here that we've been discussing uh Susie and yours till heaven um do you have any other works that you would recommend for the listeners um about Charles because I don't guess there's I think there's one other biography of Susie and I think that's about 100 years old and it's pretty brief so but do you have any other um Spurgeon sources that you'd recommend yeah, we'll start with that one. Uh, yeah, the, the little biography of Susie is reproduced by Banner of Truth, and uh, it's uh, the life of Susanna Spurgeon. It's uh, it's good. It's uh, it's helpful. It is brief, and the uh, the Banner edition includes one of her devotional books in that same volume. So you can, when you get that, you get the the first ever biography of Susanna Spurgeon, and you also get one of her devotional books. And uh, there have been other like little biographical treatments in, in other books, you know, a few pages about her. But uh, the Susie book is the first ever fuller. Uh, you know, there's always I never want to say the complete full biography because there's always more to someone's story than we could put in 300 pages or whatever that book is. Uh, but it's the fullest biography of, of Susie. Uh, as, as for Spurgeon, I'd say I would tell most people to read uh, as a good introductory volume is Arnold Dalimore's. Uh, book. Uh, I'm forgetting the title of it now, uh, but uh, I think but it's I, just Spurgeon, a biography or a new biography. Yeah, or something. that's right. Yeah. I, I think yeah. it was. It, it was also originally produced by Moody, I think, and then someone else uh, took it over, <clears throat> and it's still in print today. So that's a great start to Spurgeon biographies. Just read that, and then uh, maybe read the uh, the Susie biography. As far as Spurgeon himself, I think uh, my favorite work is his checkbook of faith. Uh, that one, and there's a book called Till He Come, which uh, is a, his communion addresses, and many of them are based on the Song of Solomon. And that has been reproduced, I think, by Christian Focus uh, does that one. And I love to, and those sermons are not in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. Those are unique uh, to that. Spurgeon preached maybe more sermons out of Song of Solomon than any other book. Uh, interestingly, and of course, he's not taking a sort of modern approach to that where it's all about love and sex and whatnot. It's uh, it's centrally about Christ, though there's application to to marriage. Hmm. Uh, so that book is a wonderful and I love to read Spurgeon sermons out loud uh, as they were as they were preached. Uh, 
And so that's one of my, that, that and checkbook of faith is even more than uh, morning and evening uh, are those two by him. As far as my own projects, I'm uh, writing a book for Reformation Heritage uh, right now called uh, Puritan Women, which will take about 10 Puritan women. Uh, and I'm not sure when I'm going to get done with that. And I have uh, some I do have plans to write more. I've got a couple of uh, two or three Spurgeon books that I'm fiddling with right now. And uh, we'll see if they if they find a home. Uh, a publisher. I, I think they will eventually, cool. but yep. awesome. Well, this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed this uh, discussion with you. I'm thankful for you taking the time to share with us. Uh, is there, do you have a website? I can't remember uh, that our listeners who are interested in this stuff can go check out. Yep. Yep. Uh, of course we're on Facebook and uh, there's a Susie Spurgeon Facebook page. And also my personal page is there. Uh, Twitter, uh, there's a Susie, a Charles and Susie account there and Instagram, which I'm learning. I'm having to learn Instagram. Yeah, you know, the, the days of book publishing and marketing are very different these days. So uh, I had an Instagram live interview yesterday with uh, Journey Women, which uh, they do a great job. And that was my first ever Instagram live interview, I think. Yeah. Uh, oh, but the webpage, uh, rayroadsjr.com or susiespurgeon.com gets you to the same place. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been great. So thank you for so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, I've learned a lot and I've really enjoyed this. Well, thank, thank you, Jordan and Brandon. I'm uh, excited about your ministry and what you're doing. And and uh, thank you for having me on today. I appreciate it. Yeah, that. it's been our pleasure. And for everybody who's been listening, I encourage you to check out the resources, uh, check out the website and the books as well. I think uh, you'd have a great time reading it. I mean, if for me, just even just listening to the stories, I think that would be enough for me to want to go read the book. So I, I enjoy that part of it. But anyway, for everybody who's been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.